0: The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Coming up this week, I talk to Rosalie Goldberg, the founding director and chief curator of the New York Biennial Performer, about her new book, Performance Now, Live Art for the 21st Century.
1: That history was something that I felt I'm so, I I have to make a bigger platform to get this story out there because every time it comes up people are still treating performance like a sideshow and I'm saying no, it's actually central to the history of 20th century art and that's been my drumbeat.
0: But first we're going to travel back to the 18th century and delve into the grisly events in the early life of the artist Thomas Gainsborough. The cover story of the October print edition of the art newspaper is headlined Murder's Most Foul. It explores new research begun by Mark Bills, the director of Gainsborough's House in Sudbury, the artist's birthplace in eastern England, and continued by the art newspaper's own Martin Bailey. I'm delighted that Mark and Martin are here with me in the studio. Martin, let's, let's start by saying exactly what happened.
2: Well, it was 1738 um, in Sudbury where the Gainsborough family lived and the uncle and uh, the cousin of the artist um, were involved in financial matters and claiming over a bankruptcy case. And the other side uh, was very belligerent and began threatening the Gainsborough family And to begin with, a threatening letter was sent to the uncle and the cousin saying that they should drop the claim, otherwise they would face death. And there was a second letter uh, some months later uh, reiterating this. In the meantime, the cousin had been murdered, and after the second letter, the uncle was murdered.
0: Mark, can you tell us about the research which led you to this discovery? Well, it was a piece in the
3: London Gazette which 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 mentioned there was a reward um, for death threats, and it had the dates of the death threats and information about them. Um, that tied with the other the contextual information we had about um, Gainsborough's uncle and cousin, um, their time in London, their, the time of their deaths, the time they made their wills. And all that we we because it was intriguing, and it seemed the fact that they'd gone to the Secretary of State and offered a reward that there was something in this that it wasn't just you know, and actually all the dates tallied, and it, it seemed very
0: clear that um, that, it, that 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 it was it was murder. Um, how did the story develop from there? What was the next piece of research to be uncovered? Well,
3: I mean that's you know we had lots of information about Gainsborough. Then we sort of then we went to. Um, Um, then we started to put together the catalogue and then I met with Martin who then came up with the the wonderful um, um, death threats which were just in the nick of time it has to be said because then we could add them to the catalogue and they furnished it with with wonderful detail actually and confirmed that murder was, you know, absolutely it was about
0: murder. So just before... Um, I ask you to read out these grisly details, Martin, in these threats. I think we should establish that all three of the people that we're talking about, the artist, his uncle and his cousin, are all called Thomas. And so we'll refer to them as the artist, the uncle and the cousin, if, we can, if, if that's OK. But um, Martin, go ahead. Tell us about these threats and, and the details within them.
2: Yes. Well, in the first threatening letter, um, the anonymous writer said, we will come down and blow you up with gunpowder. Gun God damn you or else the poor unfortunate cousin would be fed a meal that you will not like. A week earlier, the anonymous writer said that his gang had been just behind um, the cousin and described him as the rogue's arse. (laughs) Now, the uncle and the cousin must have been very worried um, and taken these threats very seriously because they actually both wrote their wills very shortly afterwards. And there was a second threatening letter sent uh, sent a short time later with an ultimatum. And the ultimatum said, uh, you must drop your financial claim within seven days or else. And after that ultimatum expired, five days later, the cousin was buried. Uh, so his body must have been taken to Sudbury and all the arrangements made. So he must have been killed literally within a few hours after the end of the expulsion of uh, the um, sorry the end of the ultimatum
0: now what's remarkable is that after this the uncle was undeterred in pursuing his this this debtor despite the fact that you know his son was dead which is a remarkable state of affairs, isn't it? There was a sort of relentlessness to his pursuit.
2: Yes, it is incredible that um, um, the cousin was killed and then the um, the, the uncle carried on um, fearlessly. Um, and six months later, he too died. Now, I discovered what happened, um, thanks again to a local newspaper. Uh, the Weekly Miscellany um, recorded that he died in a London pub the Golden Fleece in Corn Hill. Um, now, it's slightly unusual to die in a pub um, unless you've had too much to drink. <laughs> um, but one wonders whether he was actually um, fed a meal that um, he would not like. Anyway, he died in the pub. Um, so it, it is astonishing th- that these brazen threats were made and two people were murdered.
0: So, Mark, in your essay in the catalogue, you're able to sort of thread all this together in, into a broader yeah, picture I mean, of this I, early yeah, life. Yeah, and I think
3: that he wouldn't... You know, you would pursue the debt if your son had been murdered. You mm. wouldn't want to give up on people. Not for, And, I, and I, he possibly, you know, wasn't so worried about his own life, but he, I don't know. I, it's, 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 it is, it is it's difficult to know. We also know that the pub... That he where his life ended was just round the c- corner from the coach stop from Sudbury to london it 's fairly easy to get to Sudbury from London, probably easier than it was today but uh, <laughs> um as it 's a regular thing, and it was around uh, just around the corner i mean I think the most astonishing thing is that Gainsborough just you know six months later was going to London, getting off at that same coach stop uh, of course in the east of london um and he, that must have been quite a, because he was there because of the money of his um, of his that his uncle had left him, but he must have been very aware that this the death had taken place you know very close to that, but he was never threatened himself, um, but it was the the you know the 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 wealthier part of the
0: family, the other two Thomases. So we should say that that Thomas Gainsborough, the artist at this stage, is eleven years old, and he benefits directly through. His uncle
3: he does I mean his uncle i mean that that side of the family had bailed him out Gainsborough 's father went bankrupt in seventeen thirty three and though the, the Gainsborough 's house um, was bought by that side of the family, and they were allowed to continue to live there um, so um so so when Gainsborough 's when uncle died, he left twenty pounds and with the further possibility of another twenty pounds for him. Which doesn't sound an awful lot, but a lot more, but it still wasn't, it wasn't an enormous amount, but it gave him enough. And, and it was in, in the will to find a light handicraft. And he also left five shillings a week for Gainsborough's father, because Gainsborough's father was, had you know, difficulties with money. And um, possibly that was to do with, um, with drinking or gambling. We don't know, but he was rather, you know, found money quite difficult.
0: So, Martin, what do you think about how this affected the early life of the artist?
2: Well, it's very intriguing, I mean, these murders, what impact it would have had on the artist. I mean, after all, as we said, he was 11 years old. He was quite young and it must have been highly traumatic. He presumably attended the funerals and um, Sudbury was a small town. It must have been very difficult for the young man. Um, Mark is quite right that in financial terms the, uh, the artist side of the family gained enormously and that wealth helped uh, to send the artist, the young artist to London where he would uh, begin his career. But it's interesting to speculate, and one can only speculate on what the emotional effect must have been. It must have been very um, upsetting. Um, and one wonders really why... The artist's father wanted to send him to London. You would have thought the family might feel that they should keep together in this difficult time. But it's possible that uh, the father thought that Gainsborough, the artist, the young man, would actually be safer in an anonymous large city rather than in Sudbury, where one's movements could be um, very closely observed. And it must be must have been very difficult for an 11-year-old to leave the comfort of home after this very difficult situation. Um, it must have had a major impact on his personal life and uh, probably on his art. But I think that's really for Mark to comment on.
0: Indeed. Mark, I'm really interested in in um, and the aspect that relates to, to Gainsborough's father and the fact that he received a small amount of money on a weekly basis from his brother, from the uncle that was murdered, and and for the rest of his life, rather than being given a lump sum. Yeah,
3: or an annuity, you know, was a weekly thing, which was sort of so he wouldn't, uh, you know, to avoid penury. Right and um, and the town looked after him to a degree. He was given um, roles and things, but they were always in debt, particularly to the. And when he died, he was in debt. The assets were seized um, after, which was in in 1748. Actually, when Gainsbury returns to Sudbury from from London, but I think with with Gainsborough's move to London, I think was um, it wasn't particularly stipulating the will that he goes to London. But it was his father's wish he went to London, and that was really because of his talent as an artist that there was no way that he could really train and develop that ability that he clearly had early on that the only place to do that was 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 in in the in the city and I think that's one of the extraordinary things I've always thought looking at early Gainsborough is even given this money for an apprenticeship because an apprenticeship was normally seven years um, you paid an amount. He couldn't afford a painting apprenticeship which would cost him 70, 80, 90 pounds but it was he didn't become a, an engraver or anything and in fact even in Grevelo's studio he didn't become an engraver he was a draftsman. He always held out to be a be an artist which from his background was quite an extraordinary and very very single-minded and whether whether the impact of really traumatic events makes people more single-minded makes them more I don't know but certainly the shadow of debt was always within Gainsborough's life I mean in one of the latest letters he says rather i I built my life upon sandy foundations he writes but actually Gainsborough actually has always remained famous isn't he he's not he's not one of those artists who's dropped out of fashion T- terribly, but um, I think there's always a, there's an element of, of of it didn't give it. I mean, he's never overconfident, Gainsborough. In certain ways, I think there's always there's an element of of thing which which comes from that sort of debt, really.
0: Right, but he, at the same time, he was, as you say, there was a single-mindedness, and there was a sort of, as you say, not overconfidence, but certainly single-mindedness in his in his sort of squabbles with the Royal Academy later in his life. Yes, he? he knew yes. how he wanted his works to be displayed, he, for instance.
3: He, he did, and he, he was quite happy to fall out and quite happy to take the measure of removing all his pictures and never exhibiting at the Royal Academy again because they wouldn't hang his pictures as he wanted them. But again, I think there's a bit of positioning for Gainsbury because he knew the Royal Academy would not agree to his wishes. And he'd, he'd, he'd built a gallery behind Schomburg House, and I think he knew that that was a way of positioning himself too as a sort of against the Royal Academy
0: to a degree. I'd like to go back to some of the early pictures and particularly how his father's debts may have contributed to the production of some of these works and I'm particularly intrigued by this work Mr and Mrs Carter in the Tate which you reproduce in the catalogue sadly it's not in the exhibition but it's a work which has always puzzled me and you think it may have a sort of satirical intent.
3: Well I mean it 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 is a really unusual picture I mean one might look at it and say it's actually a bad p- picture i don't i don't think it, i don't think it, to be honest, i don't think it is but but it is very unusual for Gainsborough because it's not the the it taste, the tasteful picture that you would expect from a good Gainsborough at this time. He painted quite a lot of um double portraits or small family portraits you know and um of himself and his wife and everything of kirby's and and they're all rather strange you know, nice red waistcoat. You know look a tricon hat looking very elegant, but of course, Mr. and Mrs carter nothing like it he's He's got an an old fashioned wig, which must be what you know well out of fashion by you know seventeen fifty or whatever it's it completely a big waistcoat with you know over decorated waistcoat, his stockings don't quite fit they're sort of ruffled and pulled up over his legs, and his wife. Um, is about half his size. <laughs> and she looks like she has a sort of pinhead. I mean, it is really odd. And when it was sold, it was there was a note with it, which was tradition. We don't know this, but it was done for a favour. So whether it was done to pay off her debt, you know, it, it, you know, we can only speculate.
0: People are going to have a very rich experience discovering the early life of Thomas Gainsborough at, at, at Gainsborough's house.
3: Yeah, and it's great because the exhibition being on there, and, of course, you're in the house of the childhood home of Thomas Gainsborough just before, you know, when all these events happened. And just around the corner where his uncle um, lived, who was murdered, is now a French restaurant, which I think it links very nicely to the Huguenot links as well with Gainsborough's early family. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's quite a lot to see. So thank you both
0: very much for joining me.
2: Thank you. Thank
0: you. You can read more on this story at com and in the catalogue to the exhibition Early Gainsborough, from the obscurity of a country town. The show opens at Gainsborough House, Sudbury, on the 20th of October and continues until the 17th of February. Now, we thought we'd use this opportunity to talk to the art historian Bendor Grosvenor, a regular contributor to the art newspaper, about Gainsborough more widely. Bendor joins me on the line. Bendor, what do you make of this story about the murders and, and how. That affects how we now see him. Oh, I think it's fascinating evidence. I mean, I'm, I'm always so impressed
4: when people find out things like this, and it's also surprising in a way that it hasn't come out before. Um, that might reflect on some of the sort of uh, wider research skills of <laughs> of art historians, but it's really interesting um, whether it makes us look again at Gainsborough's early pictures i'm not so sure it depends how far you want to go into his psyche really um <laughs> probably you know i think i think in terms of his early development i think um there are more important things like the the uh handsome annuity that uh, he had access to when he married his wife in 1746 as the illegitimate daughter of a duke she brought with her an annuity of 200 quid a year and i think that probably allowed him you know, more freedom to do um, d- development as an artist than than the legacy given to him by his uncle of just thirty quid. Um, and if uh, you know, if these murders had had an impact on Gainsborough immediately, I-, I think we sort of would have heard about it by now, or we'd see something in his pictures. You know, I mean, there's no hint of 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 murderous struggle in any of his art, really.
0: <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, when one thinks about it, one thinks about grace and in the landscapes, that extraordinary fluency of his language, and there isn't much angst, is there? No, there isn't. Uh, the only thing one might say is that, you know, we have all those
4: charming stories of of Gainsborough uh, playing truant in his early life from school and going into the fields to to draw... Uh, trees and and landscape uh you know maybe that was a reflection of a of a turbulent domestic lifestyle uh, and maybe that's why he felt he wanted to get out of the house
0: and and go and spend time time amongst trees which which didn't argue back that is the intriguing question um let, let's let's look at early games within in the context of his life because i you know uh I love those later pictures and and the the kind of fluent language of those 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 later works. But certainly, I find his earlier works if if promising. I I find them quite stilted and quite difficult to look at in lots of ways. What do what's, what do you make of them? Oh well,
4: I, I know I love early Gainsborough. Um, I did a little exhibition on early Gainsborough some some years ago in London with Lindsay Stainton, um, and I I think actually his 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 early landscapes are amongst his best. They're sort of pure in a way. Um, there's less sentiment about them. Um, and, and I love his, his early portraits too, those little sort of uh, almost caricature figures. They're so expressive. Um, there's none of the weariness about his, some of his later portraits. You know, when you know, he famously says he gets bored of painting faces. Um, you don't get that sense in his early portraits. So I, I'm
0: a great fan. Is there a sort of uh, a, a clear path between the early and the late pictures? Do you see his style develop very steadily or are there giant leaps in his career? Well, that's the extraordinary thing about Gainsborough's artistic development is it's it's
4: really quite varied. And the fact that when he dies, um, apart from his pupil Gainsborough DuPont, nobody is really able to carry on what we call, you know, Gainsborough style, that sort of feathery staccato technique. And that in turn is so different from his early works, um, which are very like, you know, Heyman Hogarth, that sort of uh, uh, style. Um, so he is an artist who who evolves really quite um, dramatically, and I think that reflects his sort of rather uh, curious, um, unconventional personality. You know, he was a very witty person. He, he never minded being rude to even the grandest of his patrons. Uh, he was fond of the bottle, uh, and so on and so
0: forth. That's an interesting fact. I mean, it, there is this sort of um, battle at the heart of 18th century painting as it's been characterised between Gainsborough and Reynolds and Gainsborough is perceived as this sort of free spirit and more natural and all about sensibility, whereas Reynolds doctrinaire and all that kind of stuff. What do you make of all that? Is it, is, is some of that myth?
4: Well, you even get a sense um it don't it's it's a famous thing about you know artists being great rivals, and we we see that today um and it's all great for publicity um and I have often wondered if. Gainsborough and Reynolds kind of knew that they were winding each other up and getting articles in the press because it did them both a good deal of <laughs> <a> favour. <laughs> I mean they did have a famous rapprochement and and Reynolds bought Gainsborough's pictures and Gainsborough's record as being a great admirer actually of how various Reynolds' technique was. Uh, I have to say probably in the end I'm, I'm more of a Gainsborough person because I find him an artist of greater sensitivity I think. You know, Reynolds is Mr. Grand Manor and everything being very grand and imposing um he's you know he's the knight um he's the president's royal academy, uh, and one gets a slight sense that he's slightly constrained by that, whereas Gainsborough' is more of the free spirit uh, um and you see in you know those marvellous portraits of his daughters. you see an artist of great sensitivity, and of course we mustn't forget that you know he'd been um He'd lost a child very early on and, and I think all of these things make him a slightly more rounded painter.
0: I wonder if one of the other things that, that attracts you to Gainsborough above Reynolds is also his, Gainsborough's clear love of, of Van Dyck, who's of course your great hero.
4: Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, and if I last that long to be um, surrounded on my deathbeds uh, by adoring family, um, I'll be echoing Gainsborough's last words, which were, uh, "We're all going to heaven," and Van Dyke is off the party. C-
0: is there? Uh, can you sort of detect the clear mark of Van Dyke in his work in terms of the language?
4: Um, I think you can in certain of the poses, and occasionally he indulges in you know Van Dyke dress. But for me, it's more in the technique. Um, Gainsborough does go for that sort of thin, glazy application of paint that you see in Van Dyck's later English works in particular um, and of course he does lots of copies of Van Dyck um, and what, um, what I think there are clear echoes in, in Gainsborough and Van Dyck is that both artists in order to get through the vast numbers of patrons that sat before them, developed a very speedy style of painting um, and that's basically how the only way they could cope with it and, and both pulled it off very successfully
0: we should point our listeners in the direction of some of the best paintings that would pick, that they can see in public galleries i can think obviously the national gallery has the most extraordinary collection in london but there's also the Dulwich picture gallery where else would you recommend that they go whether wherever you know in the states or in the uk uh
4: well there is um gainsborough's house there's the the frick collection where you'll see uh, there's a series of wonderful full lengths which are not only brilliant works of art but also in a miraculous state of condition. So they shimmer uh, in the way that Gainsborough, when he's working, um, does.
0: Yes, I mean, those are those are remarkable things. And the Met has a, a, a decent Gainsborough collection too, if I'm right. Uh,
4: yes, and uh, if you go around the Met, it's it's amazing how that huge gallery is devoted to uh English artists of the 18th century like Gainsborough Reynolds uh, and Romney uh and it's a real reminder of how uh English 18th century portraitists like Gainsborough took America by storm in the first part of the 20th
0: century mendor thank you very much for joining me <laughs> okay pleasure You can find Bendor's column The Diary of an Art Historian in the art newspaper every month and read more of his thoughts at his website arthistorynews.com. We'll be back with the interview with Rosalie Goldberg after this. (laughs) Halil Gibran's 1923 book The Prophet has never been out of print, which makes him rank alongside Shakespeare as one of the best-selling poets in the world. If that wasn't enough, the Lebanese-American writer and thinker was also a master painter. In Paris, he mixed with Rodin, Yeats and Jung, and it was there that he painted Portrait of Charlotte Teller, one of three Gibran works in Bonham's modern and contemporary Middle Eastern art sale in London on the 24th of October. As Bonham's department head, Nima Sagachi explains, quote, Gibran was and remains a hugely influential figure in the Arab world. He left his entire estate to a family museum in Lebanon, so the appearance of these three paintings at auction is a major, almost unheard of event. You can find out more at bonhams.com. Now, if you want to get to grips with the history of performance art, then you should look no further than Rosalie Goldberg's hugely influential book, Performance Art from Futurism to the Present. First published by Thames & Hudson in 1979, it's been regularly updated and remains an essential text. Goldberg first came to prominence as a curator at The Kitchen in New York in the late 1970s and programmed live art for many museums before founding the non-profit organisation Performer in 2004. She's been the Chief Curator at the Performer Biennial in New York City since 2005 and now Goldberg has a new book, also published by Thames & Hudson, called Performance Now, Live Art for the 21st Century. I spoke to Goldberg when she was in London for Freeze Week earlier this month. It seems to me that it's important that you write a new book rather than a new chapter for the old book because there has been an explosion of performance art in the sense there are more artists making performance art, but also this very important development, which is that performance art has been adopted into what we might call the mainstream.
1: Yes, I would say uh, three big reasons for that. One is that history is catching up. And by that, I mean, uh, for those of us who... Followed, of course, conceptual art, 70s, so much work that was not about making objects, that was about process. The flip side of that was always performance, has been. So Joan Jonas, Marina, Carolee Schneeman, Vito Conchi, and so on, many, many artists working in that way. Uh, What also happened by the end of the 90s, people say, why start the book in 2000, is those artists had really matured and looking back on their work, recognized where they wanted to take it to another scale to get another kind of recognition. So you're looking at artists in 2000 who've actually been doing performance for 30 years and are really very knowledgeable with their material, with the way the work is presented, and working in museums. Because after all, by then, those artists were ready for a muse- for major museum exhibitions. So that's one of the elements. Um, I would say the new kind of museum has also created a space, I think, with Tate Marden opening in 2000. Uh, the museum became a kind of Culture Palace, uh, a, a place for a lot of excitement, huge spaces, large crowds of people. Old days, we used to go to a museum and whisper, you know, like, <laughs> you, like you were in a church or a library, you know, be very quiet, keep your voice down. Uh, that's not the case with the contemporary museum. And then the third reason really is performer. this biennial that I started in 2004, the uh, first edition was 2005, which showed three things. It It really, I wanted to show this extraordinary history that i felt had just simply been left out of the history of art uh, the 20th century after all is a multimedia century think of all all of flash you know through your mind all the images that come to mind whether it's hannah Hoke or the dada or the futurists um, bauhaus surrealism dada uh, futurism etc cetera, etc cetera. action actions all kinds of action that actually stir up a whole new movement in each case. So I think that history was something that I felt I'm so, I, I have to make a bigger platform to get this story out there because every time it comes up, people are still put, treating performance like a sideshow. And I'm saying, no, it's actually central to the history of 20th century art. And that's been my drumbeat right from the beginning, not just to write something called performance art, but to really do revisionist rewriting of the 20th century, saying there are all these places where we have to drop performance back in to its rightful place and show how much it changed and changed the landscape or the, the lit- literally the texture and what artists did. And then performer showed the second thing was to commission new work for the 21st century. Looking, again, a little backtrack to late 90s, think of where we were technologically, the large projections some names that come to mind, Shirin Nishat, Isaac Julian, Julian Waring, Pierre Weig, and on and on and on. Gorgeous, beautiful material that seduces you on, from, a, from visually and intellectually and politically. So it's work that had a lot of content. So much of the work we were looking at the late 90s was showing us the world on large screens, but as you know, something that was also somewhere b- between performance and film. Um, So commissioning performance that would have that level of excellence, that level of seduction for all the right reasons. I, I like to think we can be seduced by beautiful work that's also dealing with very difficult subject matter. And then performance showed that uh, this this history. It showed that we can produce and really get behind artists, with them, find funding, find venues. Performance was never supported in that way. And um, and then again, we showed that actually performance can have a very large public because it's it's people looking at people. You know, you actually don't need a PhD and you know very tough sort of art theory in order to have a response to a lot of this work so the accessibility people in front of people people looking at other people looking across the room at other people but also the sociability of of watching action and getting very close to artists ideas while you're there
0: one one of the interesting aspects of the book and which i think you articulate very well is this idea that performance is expanding as a genre we're not we're not just seeing a sort of narrow uh a narrow language of performance, which is sort of repeated and updated. We're actually seeing performance from lots of different spheres creeping into art and art creeping into those spheres in turn. Can you explain something more about that, particularly with theatre and dance in particular, I'm thinking?
1: You know, um, I'll start by saying that the art world is a very permissive place, which is what why we are all so attracted to it. Um, if you're in the, the music an exclusively a music world or and let's say classical or new music of the last hundred years or in dance, it's much more difficult to break through and really take take your material apart. The art world again, traditionally the traditionally is it's untraditional. Traditionally it's it's a radical place. The last let's again look at the last hundred years or so. Um the art world attracted the dancers in the 60s in in, in uh, New York, uh, dancers, musicians, filmmakers, the radical thinkers in all those areas. Let's throw out some names. Steve Reich, uh, you know, Phil Glass, and in the dance world, Trisha Brown, Yvonne Rainer, on and on. Those work, that, that work could not fit into dance in those days. It's subsequently been finally acknowledged, it's almost like the prodigal son returns to the music uh, hierarchy. You know, with, so Phil Glass is now extraordinary. He's the work's always been there from the beginning, but it's finally back in the in the you know the hierarchy. Yeah,
0: he's a classical he's, composer now. <laughs> exactly.
1: So, and who were those first audiences? Those first audiences were artists sitting in lafts, talking, and, and all artists of all different genres talking to each other. Um, so I think that, uh, that's, that's a very important part of this history that it, that the, those working in new dance, let's just use the new IE, but, or the avant-garde or the radical or the breakthrough in all those genres come to the art world for their first audiences because it's this place where you can really experiment. And so, um, you know, that's, again, another very important way to see the present because how do we deal with the new media? How do we deal with – are we really paying attention to the scale, to the, uh, the high-low, which used to be so much a part of the conversation of the 80s that no longer exists? I'm, you know, work with, with younger artists or with students of mine at New York University. There is no high-low. We go back. Both ways, uh, equally, uh, we did a project helping with the Jay Z video, and people were saying, "Oh, is this the end of performance art?" No, pop, pop, uh, the pop world has always looked to the art world for very radical ideas. John Lennon did it, Brian Eno did it, um, you know, David Bowie did it, and so on. The, the, those people actually, a lot of them, went to art school, and again, were allowed to play at their most radical, having come out of this. I'll keep using that word this permissive context. And there are other ways we can talk about performance, that it also allows the artist to talk about so many subjects. There's so many critical subjects right now um, that everybody's feeling a need to comment on, and it provides so many different layers um, about things that artists want to talk about. I mean, I was doing a studio visit recently, and a painter, who will remain unnamed, who's really interested in doing performance said, you know, I make a painting, but I can't get the whole story across. There are so many ideas that go into this work. And I've had that, that comment from a lot of the artists that we worked with at Performa.
0: One way of going back to theatre, I think, is to address a particular work that was p- performed as part of Performa, which is Ragnar Kjartansson's work, where he uh, restaged a particular section from, from, from a Mozart opera. Now, I think that's interesting because when I was at art college in the early 90s, the word theatrical was like the word decorative. It was about the worst thing that your art could be called. But we are in this situation now where artists can enter the world of theatre and can enter that into a radical space. Have you noticed a shift in that direction?
1: Absolutely. And I've had backtrack before talking about the fabulous piece that Ragnar did for Performer. Um in a way it's and there's a whole chapter in the book that really deals with that very specifically and in some ways it's almost the easiest question to answer because i'm always asked well can you make a definition of performance well in a way by comparing theater and performance it's the one way to say what performance is not it's not about language it's not about storytelling it's not about text even the most abstract theater you know a beckett let's say which is no no surprise that art world tends to like Beckett because, again, it's kind of a lot of silences and quiet moments. Um, I think uh, it raises very, very interesting questions. And I say the theatrical always somehow assumed, like the decorative, but also that that ideas would be – there would be a, a full circle. I think artists in general don't want to give away too much. It's like you, you don't tell the whole story. You leave a lot of space in between for the viewer. Um, so in the book I really go th- use it as an opportunity to say this is what is theatre and this is what is performance and they actually don't really like talk to each other very much the two practitioners but what has occurred is that in that way and again to use a more academic term, deconstructed the, the fact that artists can go in and deconstruct what are the elements of theatre or that a theatre person again somebody who's working more in an avant-garde mode, like a Richard Maxwell, can step into the art world because, back to my early comment, it's permissive. It allows him to make a piece of theatre that doesn't look anything like a piece of theatre and yet to do it in a museum. And it doesn't look like theatre because it doesn't complete a sentence. It doesn't complete a story. Again, I, I say this lightly because, of course, he could say, of course I didn't complete a sentence. So not to, not to be insulting, but... Um, that the Richard Maxwell can move in and do a performance, a piece of theater in a museum context that that breaks down what we think of as theater. And equally that an Green and Drag Set or a Ragnar Kytiarsson can move into a theater world, i.e. something where we're sitting in front looking at, um, and totally disrupt the whole idea of what are you looking at. So to for the listener, he took a three-minute aria, the last song from Mozart's uh, Marriage of Figaro, which he walked into my office and promptly started singing. And everybody was, you know, this this amazing man from Reykjavik singing his heart out. Uh, and he said, Rosalie, I want to do 20... 20- times no i think he said first i want to do it 50 times so it would be a live loop and would take about 2 hours so that was the first meeting i think the third meeting is uh, i well i think i want to do 5 hours fine go for it the final meeting and you know the last the last round was 12 hours so we began at midday and ended at midnight and it was extraordinary. And, uh, in fact, we ended up calling it bliss because I said people are just going to be totally blissed out, you know. So it was bliss. And um, it was phenomenal. And, again, somebody, not surprisingly, somebody who comes from a lot of theater background, both his parents were in theater. So he he knew from whence he came. He also talked about this idea of repetition, the idea of the rehearsal not just repetition as we know it in terms of, you know, minimalist repetition, but repetition as rehearse, rehearse, rehearse over and over again. So he really took all those elements. Um, there was He had a lot of knowledge going into the theater, which, again, often is the, the traje- trajectory about why somebody would be doing that. Another artist of uh, Elmgreen and Dragset, uh, Ingar, actually came out of theater. And one of his comments that I believe I mentioned in that chapter was, how quickly you can do something in the art world, that you have an idea and you can put it on and no one's there to stop you. If you're in theater, it's the work of many people. You have the the playwright, the actor, the director, the producer, the theater, the place, the lighting designer. It's the work of many. The art world, that single artist is typically the the one and when you're working in a the, with a theater group it is the group it's there are a lot of people involved i think
0: that sort of directness that you're talking about that sort of immediacy of performance it seems so powerful now because the world we are living in a really fractured era and uh, there is a long history, as you say, of a political engagement with performance and and just in fact um, we 're having this conversation in London, and Tanya Bruguera has just opened a work which basically invites the audience to become performers and rise up as a kind of collective action to address the migration crisis. It seems to me that this lends performance an even greater currency at the moment. Is that your feeling? Are you seeing a lot of activism connected to performance right now?
1: Well, it's again, it's right now and has been for a long time. I would say, again, Tanya's work, Tanya has been doing this kind of work for 20 years. It's wonderful to see her actually at her third project at Tate Modern, which is fantastic with Tate also to to be doing that. And in each case, she's unrelenting, and there's no compromise. Uh, It begins about people and the people she wants to bring in and to be heard. And that is always a a a capacity of performance, and it's so powerful. Uh, We did a project last performer with Barbara Kruger, which in some ways was more subtle. It was right after the election. Uh, The U.S. election. The U.S. election. Uh, We were... You can imagine the emotions around that. Uh, she managed to create a work that she wanted it to be totally for amongst uh, the people, uh, very, you know, hit all kinds of generations. She created a skate park that we actually, uh, as well as the skateboard, uh, skateboards and uh, beanies and sweatshirts and the whole thing uh, to reach a very large public and all the wording on that was very quietly her kind of activism. She's not going to come out and say in, in her way she's always very subtle. So it was like whose values, who owns this, Who's, whose ownership. All the, the language that she used, we also made subway cards. So people were lining up to get her subway cards and on those, those cards were her notations about her feelings about the politics of the time or I'm, I possibly know the work of um, Zanele Maholi, South African artist who again said she had very specific messages she wanted to get across about being African, about being LGBT, and so on. and we put that material into Times Square. You can't get more public than that. So there's there's ways to be political, there's ways to be activists that might not immediately seem like, oh, this is radical performance, but indeed it is.
0: It's been a fascinating conversation and it is a fascinating book. Thank you very much for joining me, Rosalie.
1: Thanks. Bye.
0: Performance Now, live art for the 21st century, is out now and published by Thames & Hudson. It's $45 in the US and £32 in the UK. And that's all for this week. Do subscribe to the podcast and you can follow us on Twitter at TAN Audio. That's T-A-N Audio. You can also follow us on our main Twitter account and Facebook at The Art Newspaper and our Instagram is The theartnewspaper.official. Thanks to Mark, Martin and Bendor, to Rose Lee and to you for listening. Join us again next week when we'll be exploring the Bruce Nauman exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.